Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Something's lurking at the edge of the park People be warned, people beware There's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair Hear him cry, hear him howl Looking for someone to disembowel Claws like a hook, eyes like coal Feet so big they're gonna crush your soul They call him Sasquatch Hello and a big warm welcome to Yowie Central. I'm Sarah and you're listening to 94.9 Main FM. Here at Yowie Central, we explore the latest on Yowie research in Australia. We hear Yowie witness testimonies and we talk to the experts. And we dive headfirst into paranormal encounters, UFOs and aliens, orbs and psychics and all sorts of mysterious phenomena. Because let's face it, there's all this weird and mysterious stuff going on out there and I don't know about you, but I really want to know how and why it all happens. It's the final show of the year, my friends, and I have part two of my enthralling chat with Paul Wallace lined up for you. If you missed it last week, Paul is the internationally best-selling author of The Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden. He's a talented documentary maker, creator of Fifth Kind TV and the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. Paul's books and documentaries probe world mythologies and ancestral narratives for their insights into human origins, human potential and our place in the cosmos. I highly recommend his documentary, The Anunnaki Chronicles, Who or What is Controlling This World?, and his two short documentaries on the potential origin of Sasquatch. And they're called Sasquatch, 
The Unsolved Ancient Global Mystery and Sasquatch Primordial Secrets and Ancient Hybridization Programs. And you can find those on the Fifth Kind TV website and also on YouTube. Paul has some absolutely fascinating ideas as to the origins of our hairy friends, which do involve paleo contact and ancient stories of sky people from all over the world. Paul also has some ideas as to why we ridicule people who witness these beings and why Yowies avoid us human beings like the plague. Here's Paul with part two of our chat. How long ago do you think that those experiments occurred? Well, if you go to the Sumerian stories, they hint at a time when our ancestors were doing mining for our colonisers. And there's a hint of that in the Bible as well, because in the text that first introduces Eden to us and the garden or or enclosed zone of Eden, the text mentions that there are some key mineral deposits uh, conveniently close by. Well, if you're reading that at face value, why on earth would Adam and Eve need to know where the key mineral deposits were? (laughs) So, you know, there's a whole other story there. That's not been told. So I mentioned the mining because if you go to southern Africa, there are prehistoric gold mines there, mines that have been dated to around 200,000 years. Oh, wow. Now, paleontology, anthropology says that Homo sapiens were around 200,000 years ago, not smart enough to farm, not smart enough to build cities, but smart enough to work in someone else's mine. And so I, I think there's actual solid evidence that that was part of our history. So you read the Sumerian stories, the Popol Vuh stories, and that suggests that to get humans that were smart enough to mine, there had to be an intervention to upgrade our primate ancestors. But then there's another huge leap that happens in human history when we start building cities. Now, in 1998, Uh, there was a team went into southeast Turkey from the Max Planck Institute and um, the University of Norway in Az. It was headed up by Manfred Hoyne. And they had identified what appears to be the first farm in known history, the place where for the first time plants were genetically modified to become cultivatable crops, 11 of them. And that that same tribe or even family, Manfred Hoyne said, because it was so localized, also suddenly worked out how to do animal husbandry. So a very clever family. Yeah. And uh, so all of a sudden we've got farming. Farming means settled life, means surpluses. You can specialize, you can build cities. So that is regarded as the beginning of civilization as we know it. And it's dated to about 10,000 years ago. Except, and that's a significant moment because we do see farming cropping up all around the planet immediately after it's happened in southeast Turkey, which has always been something that's intrigued uh, scientists from the get-go. How did that knowledge spread so fast? So we've got that moment. But there are megalithic remains of cities that predate Karakadag 
that that first farm and that suggests uh, another upgrade uh, another rapid download of information now the babylonians had a story that gave an explanation for that and that was that we were visited by uh, a being called oannes and the apkalu and they were not human they looked to our ancestors like part human part aquatic and they came and taught us how to farm and they came and taught us how to build cities and how to do sanitation and water flow and all these things and money systems and banking systems all in one great period of tutelage that's the babylonian story and it's not a standalone story because there are stories in australia if you listen to indigenous story in australia many of the original australian peoples talk about being visited by people from the pleiades who taught our ancestors how to farm and how to live on the planet in balance with nature. Native American story, same thing. I have people who are Cherokee, and they've told me exactly the same, that their ancestry goes back to a visitation from people from the Pleiades who showed their ancestors what plants were good for food, what were good for medicines, how to do sanitation, so on and so forth, how to live not at an animal subsistence level, but at the level of a civilization. And that's another strange correlation. Why would indigenous peoples around the world give credit to not their elders, but to beings who've come from outer space, and in particular from a planet somewhere in the Pleiades? So these are all leaps forward that our ancestors talk about and that we can trace as we study uh, paleontology uh, archaeobiology there's a leap forward that produces a workforce that can mine and then there's a leap forward that produces a human population that can farm and build cities and when we read genesis 3 translated the way i argue i argue it should be it's clear you're looking at an extended period of modifications the pope of an extended period of genetic uh, modification just as we've taken ages and ages to produce the modern German shepherd dog. They produced ages and ages to produce us. And it's not just, you can't just brush it off as, oh, well, these are the fables of, you know, primitive peoples who didn't know better, sat around making up stories. One of the greatest minds in human history, universally acknowledged as such, Plato believed exactly that. And in his books, Phaedo and Timaeus and Critias, he argues that the human race was evolving peacefully and happily on planet Earth and then was visited by other entities who worked with our ancestors to upgrade us for higher consciousness and higher intelligence. And I think, once again, you know, people read Plato, they take him very seriously. Uh, there's a British mathematician, I've forgotten his name, and philosopher who describes the whole of the Western tradition of philosophy as no more than a series of footnotes to Plato. And nobody would argue with that. He's a great mind. And we, we study him when we do philosophy. We study him when we do theology. We take him absolutely seriously. And then, oh, now he's talking about ETs. We'll bracket that out. Now he's talking about interference in our evolution. We'll bracket that out. <sighs> now he's talking about a populated universe. Let's bracket that out. Now he's talking about previous civilizations. We'll bracket that out. And then we'll just mash the other together, put it on a handout and give it to these 
people training to be priests, which is what happened to me. So I read Plato at Theological College and they'd left all the juicy bits out. <laughs> and so I've read it much later and discovered that this more interesting story of human origins was part of mainstream conversation two and a half thousand years ago when Plato was writing. And it was there 2,000 years ago at the beginning of Christian history. What we've been talking about today was absolutely mainstream consideration in the early years of Christianity. And it was only later that it became forbidden stories, uh, non-orthodox, heretical, heterodox, and all this, no, we don't talk about that and we'll make a joke of it, began. So it's a very long-standing pattern of pushing these um, less neat and tidy stories out of public conversation and try to make a taboo of them. So if, if perhaps then the last intervention, the last engineering project up slash upgrade occurred maybe 10,000 years ago, do you think, do you think there will be another, another upgrade? When's the next one? Are we going to get smarter? Are we going to be able to use our whole brain? Oh, what a wonderful idea. Because, I mean, the, all these stories, I was going to go to the Pope of but the fact is all these stories have an explanation of our evolution that ends with us being downgraded a few notches so that we're not using all our brains. Yeah. The Pope of has that story. It's there in the Greek narrative, there in the biblical narrative, there in the Nigerian narrative. We're upgraded, upgraded. And then those who've engineered us find us difficult to manage, so they they brain damage us in some way. So we're just limited now to our five physical senses, and for anything further afield, we have to rely on what an authority tells us. And apparently, our masters found us easier to manage when we were like that. So all these stories hint at the possibility that our original state is smarter, with higher cognitive abilities. The Pope of Vu hints that we were better at uh, anticipating things, better at precognition, better at remote viewing, better telepathic connection, better self-healing, and that what was done to downgrade us was to put something in the environment that would brain damage us. The ethic is the same. They released devices into the environment that would damage our health and our mental health. Uh, the encouraging silver lining of those stories is that our natural state is to be smarter. So it's not so much about evolving to be smarter. It is recovering the skills we had before, recovering our, our higher cognitive abilities. And, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I reckon most dogs are probably better remote viewers than human beings are. They're better at some diagnost medical diagnostic skills. They can yes. sniff out what part of your body is ill, that kind of thing. Yeah. Most birds have a better sense of direction than you and I do. Some of them are faster learners than you and I are. So it might not be a matter of evolving, but more a matter of recovering what's in our DNA, recovering use of other bits of our brain. And In my book, Escaping from Eden, I talk about this fascinating syndrome that's known as acquired savant syndrome and it's studied by uh, neuroscientists around the world it's it's real science peer-reviewed science that looks at cases where people have had an accident they've had a blow to the head or a central nervous system event and the outcome is that a an amazing 
more advanced cognitive ability has been released. So they come away from the accident and they can speak a language they mm. couldn't speak before, or play a musical instrument they couldn't before, or have prodigious skills in mathematics or physics or art that they didn't have before. This is a real syndrome. And it's totally counterintuitive because an injury to the brain should diminish your abilities. It shouldn't extend them. Mm. But it seems that it's accidentally knocking on bits of the brain that have been switched off. Daryl Treffert at Marion University has studied more than 70 of these cases of acquired Savant syndrome. And when I started reading up on that, I thought, well, this is incredible because we have no way of explaining that conventionally. How is it that we have higher cognitive abilities in our brains that have been put into the off position? I, I remember hearing one of these neuroscientists talking about a lady whose artistic skills were lifting as a result of a, a brain injury. And he said it seems to be a disinhibition of the brain's visual systems. Right. And I read that and I thought, disinhibition? What are inhibitors doing in our brains? Yeah. <laughs> and our ancestors actually have stories of that, of inhibitors in our brains. So I, our ancestors have an explanation. And I think it's somewhat hopeful. And it gives a background to why so many of these indigenous cultures have shamanic and mystical practices aimed at heightening our awareness, heightening our consciousness, uh, getting back some of those high abilities that our ancestors had. So I find that a really fascinating uh, area to probe. It's, it's something that crosses over with studies around Sasquatch because there's a fair bit of testimony saying that when people encounter Sasquatch, they try and communicate with the human beings. Yeah. Uh, they communicate telepathically. Mm -hmm. Now, some people might listen to that and just roll their eyes. But I don't think anyone should do that who's had a baby. Because if you've had a baby, you realize that telepathic communication is the very first go-to we have. Your baby from the get-go is trying to get you to understand what he, she wants. Your baby wants you to understand when she needs a change, when she needs a feed, when she needs to sleep. And because you're not picking up her verbalizations, she's willing you to understand. And parents do their level best to pick it up telepathically. It's our very first language before we learn to verbalize. Um, pet owners, how do you communicate with your pet? How does your pet tell you what it wants? <laughs> we have two cats. And we've come to realize that by the time our cat is meowing at us, it's because it's exasperated that we haven't got the message. <laughs> so really, telepathic communication is not as far-fetched as some people reckon. If you are out in the bush and you come across an animal that is telling you to get away, you would want to pick that up before it gets exasperated with yeah. you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So I think that's the bigger picture of the kind of communication that some people have experienced when they talk about uh, Yowies and in particular Bigfoot. I've heard a lot of talk because I have 
interesting people from all walks of life on my show. It's not just Yowie related. We, I, because a lot of these things are interconnected, I, I often talk to, to people who have experiences with, you know, with ghosts and spirits and people who are psychic, people who can hold an object and tell you some of the history of that object. I think it's psychometry, isn't it, when you do that? Yes, um, yes. People who are incredibly intuitive and I, I think those, those people show us what we've lost and perhaps that there seems to be a lot of discussion about the earth ascending to a, 5D, a 5D, fifth dimension plane from 3D to 5D and perhaps that ascension is, the, is an upgrade that we deserve after being messed around with <laughs> that we... That we are learning. I find a lot more people are, are meditating, are, are interested in. Oh, yes, absolutely. A spiritual awakening. Yeah, yeah. I think there's something huge happening at the moment yeah. and I, I'm perfectly willing to accept the language that you've, you've put on it there, Sarah, because people contact me every week, some weeks it's every day, and I'm blown away by the number of people who are telling me, and it's people of all ages who are saying, I um, I no longer believe what I believed previously. Mm. I, I'm really investigating things and thinking afresh. I hear from a lot of guys in their 70s telling me they're in that place where they're in a time of real accelerated learning, a real appetite to learn, mm. and understanding that life is far more interesting and multi-layered than ever they'd realized that we are not who we thought we were as a species and there's this sense of wonder and excitement yes. and hunger and hunger for knowledge and learning that i i've never seen or felt this before so something really extraordinary is happening right now i know uh, my celtic ancestors i'm a quarter welsh uh, spoke about thin places Mm. And it's very similar to beliefs that original Australians have, that there are particular places where the the veil between us and other dimensions is somehow thinner. Yes. Where it's easier to perceive things in other dimensions. And so there'll be particular locations you'd go to, you'd call that a thin place. Some ancient buildings may have been built there, you'd call that a thin place. And... Some of these places are, are just places in the wilderness that everyone knows there's something different about that place. If you can accept that, I wonder if it's possible our planet or this arm of our galaxy is moving through a thin place because something has changed in the environment that has suddenly made it easier for people to shake themselves free of old beliefs that are misfitting and ill-serving and are opening their minds to other possibilities that suggest our lives could be far more interesting than ever we'd imagined. Yeah, and how exciting. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm totally in that space right now. It's a, fascinating, it's a fascinating time to be alive. And particularly after I watched your oh, – I've watched a few of your videos and your documentaries, and it, something just went, oh, my God, this is it. It's just went click. I grew up in a in a Catholic uh, environment, a, a Catholic primary school, all, all girls Catholic high school. Nothing really ever clicked for me. It never resonated. Everything just didn't seem to make sense. The whole story, the yes. whole it just it, there was something there that I didn't feel that I was a part of. It just didn't it didn't resonate with me at all. But then 
this kind of spiritual journey that's been happening for me over the last couple of years and then discovering that that so many people have contact with with aliens and UFOs and then starting to realize that hang on that's actually been happening for eons that contact yes isn't it and so it it is i i personally have this this kind of bubbling feeling of excitement going oh what's going to happen next yeah, this is definitely, really cool <laughs> definitely cuz i think uh, i hear from a lot of people who say things just like you said sarah that, that they began in a church environment they believed in something beyond. They believed in a bigger story. They believed in an idea of God. But somehow this buttoned-down story they were getting from their Catholic school or their Catholic church, or I was an Anglican, so I could say the same about Anglican schools and churches, didn't click, didn't seem to be the whole picture, just didn't ring true. And I hear from a lot of people who are absolutely thrilled to say, okay, now, now I've watch the fifth guy on TV. Now I see this other story that has blown the whole subject open for me. And it's brought me to a place where I can say, yes, I believe there's something beyond. Yes, I have an idea of, of the source of the cosmos that's kind of a godlike concept. And I don't have to buy in to things I don't really believe or the sto- to stories that don't make sense. And there's a tremendous release of First of all, a relief that they're not the only one who's been thinking this way. And then a release of something that I think is really essential to humanity and it's curiosity. Mm. But suddenly there's this great permission giving to release your curiosity and follow it and start asking all the questions that you were fobbed off with in, in the past when you were going through education and you realize, no, no, those answers really weren't adequate and there are far more interesting things to discover. And I, I love hearing that energy from people who've perhaps been for decades in a particular paradigm, whether it's a scientific one or a religious one, who are now saying, oh, my goodness, how much time have I got left to work out what's really going on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and almost normal life is getting in the way. Like, I don't want to talk about pandemics and all that stuff. There's yes, way right. more interesting things going on than that. Um, so I'm, I'm curious now, there are quite a few people around the world who are talking about CE5, so actually actively going out there and attempting contact with UFOs. I'm fascinated as to what, the, what people who have been, who, who, who say that they've been abducted, like what's going on there? Is, is that part of that same genetic experimenting that happened tens of thousands of years ago or hundreds of thousands of years ago is it the same are they still experimenting on us well it's it's interesting because i think as i say i started with a journey in biblical theology and any bible reader will know that there are abduction stories in the bible and they come very early on in genesis 6 when these non-human entities turn up called the bene elohim who want to hybridize with human beings. And uh, it's always very interesting to hear your preacher try and preach a sermon on that um, <laughs> without uh, uh, putting the wind up people. But it's there. It's there in the Bible. And it's, again, a story that repeats in every culture around the world. So, you know, if I say, I was talking to someone the other day, said they were abducted uh, by an alien a lot of people's minds go straight to the National Enquirer thinking, oh, did they get $50 for that story? 
Well, it's not like that at all. Every culture shares this story of abduction for hybridization, whether you're listening to the story of the Mamiwata people in Ghana or the Maharani tradition in Kenya or the Encantos in the Philippines or the Umoya stories in the Caribbean or the story of Zeus and Europa. The whole of Europe is named after an E.T. abductee when you get down and read the story or two with Tig in Wales. Every culture has this story and there are elements in the story that repeat with amazing precision. All those stories, all the ones I've mentioned, talk about people being taken from near water and they're taken for a few years by people who look human, but they're not human. They're used for hybridization and then they're returned. Now, why would all those cultures have that story? Why would they all make up the same story? It, it really doesn't make sense. It's not an analogy of anything else. There's no other pattern uh, of behavior on the planet that matches that. And so if you ask why, well, in, in the biblical version, it says that the Ben Elohim looked down at planet Earth. They were observers, apparently, or, or watchers, as they're called in the Book of Enoch, and said, wow, Earth girls are hot. <laughs> let's, let's have some of that in our gene pool. And the story is they find us attractive. They want something that we have in their gene pool. Go to Ghana is exactly the same story. The Mamiwata people want to improve their own gene pool with human DNA. So that's curious. If you go to Scotland in the 1500s, Robert Kirk, I mentioned this because Robert Kirk was a Presbyterian minister. So that's a very conservative kind of Christian minister, very conservative in his beliefs, very tight theologically, but when he went to his parish in Aberfoyle, he listened to the locals. And as he listened to the locals, their testimony built up and up and up until he realized there's something else going on here that we need to acknowledge. And so he wrote a book called The Secret Commonwealth. And in that book, he argued that there is a non-human presence that is interacting with Homo sapiens, interacting with our civilization, because they are seeking to improve their gene pool with human DNA. He didn't use the phrase gene pool and DNA, but that's the story he's telling. Yeah. And if I were to say well, that that is the original story of fairies, you might say fairies, what, Tinkerbell? <laughs> you say the word fairy, you immediately think of Peter Pan and Tinkerbell, but no, the original fairy stories were what Robert Kirk was writing about, these Celtic stories about abduction for hybridization. Now, there was a really interesting testing of this in the 1990s when U.S. defense got a bit concerned about these stories because so many of them were coming from <laughs> defense force personnel. <laughs> uh, and they had enough defense force personnel saying, I've been abducted. I think I was used for hybridization that they thought – we need to work out if these guys are safe to fly. And so they wanted a, a psychiatrist to come and assess them all. And so they found the most eminent senior psychiatrist they could think of on the planet, the head of clinical psychology for Harvard, Professor John Mack. He interviewed more than 50 people with this testimony, and his report was they are experiencing something real, something objective, 
that we need to look at. And uh, when Harvard discovered he was saying that, they uh, they were shocked and tried to get rid of him. Of course. But, uh, God, how <laughs> Yeah, right. But that, when you've got an authority that eminent saying, no, these people aren't crazy, they've experienced something. Mm. And then when you put that alongside our ancestral narratives and say what they're reporting has been reported in every generation for tens of thousands of years, again, you have to do business with that body of testimony. You have to listen and say they've experienced something. What is it? And there is a coherent picture that emerges, and it is that we've got company. You're listening to internationally best-selling author and documentary maker Paul Wallace on Yowie Central on 94.9 Main FM. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I wonder how that genetic engineering actually occurs like so if if a if a human a homo sapien female or a homo sapien male is abducted is it a, is it an actual sexual encounter or is it a uh, a surgery to uh, like an in vitro fertilization situation I, i'm yeah how does it actually work i wonder well that's a great question if you listen to the sumerian story it, to my mind, a description made by someone without technology of something they saw in a lab because they talk about the mixing of substances uh, in, in, in what we would call a Petri dish. Uh, you've got the story in um, Genesis of a whole new hum- human being being generated by part of the body of another human being. Well, we call that cloning, Ah, when you fertilize an egg with a cell from somebody else's body instead of with a a sperm. That's cloning. Uh, And so you've got stories like that that when we read them with a 21st century uh, mind and with 21st century knowledge, we can recognize what they're telling us. So some of these stories are cloning stories. Other stories suggest this is a breeding program. But there's a very definite moment of going from cloning to breeding in the Bible itself because at the beginning of Genesis 3, the human beings are not fertile. And by the end of Genesis 3, they are. Ah. And that moment occurs in other stories where we start off with human beings that are not fertile. So it tells you straight away 
they've been engineered and then there's a change made to upgrade them and they become fertile and more conscious and more intelligent. So I, I actually think we've got stories in the deep past about the two things. And if we listen to testimony today, you can hear the two things being described. Some people saying this was a, se a sexual act I experienced and then others saying it was, it was, it was something surgical that was done. And, and the people who, to whom that occurs nowadays in our times, the, the reports that I've read, the testimonies that I've read are that they were terrified but, but reassured, everything's fine, you're, you're fine, uh, we're not going to hurt you. But in the meantime, they're stealing your bits <laughs> and using them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, that's right. And I've spoken to people who've had those experiences and on the one hand, they'll say, the beings I was with actually were reassuring me. Actually, they were quite nice. And that's hard for people to do business with. You know, don't assume that in other cultures, uh, it's more friendly to these stories. Because if in Kenya, you come back after three years and say, oh, I was taken by these, these, um, these other beings and I was used for hybridization. Actually, they're quite nice. People aren't going to applaud that story. Uh, they're not going to give you a better job or, or, <laughs> no. or uh, give you an honour for telling that story. You're more likely to be taken to the doctor for some medication or taken to the priest for an exorcism. Yes. People don't like those stories. <laughs> and it's the same in our culture. If someone comes back and says, well, actually, they're quite nice, you think, well, what is this? This person must be crazy. But then there's another half to the story, which is that they were quite nice but I live in a perpetual state of grief because I know I have children that I've never met or that I only saw once yes. and who I know I'll never see again because they're, they're not living on this planet. Can you imagine the pain of that and then not being able to talk about it because wow. you know you're only going to be ridiculed? There was a very brave uh, lady who I know, Jane Pooley, who went on Australian television and talked about her experience of this. And she was interviewed by, interviewed by Ita Buttrose. And the edit that we all saw on TV uh, blew me away because it was a polite, calm, respectful conversation that allowed Jane Pooley to share her experience. I know that the bits they edited out uh, meant that it was a far more, uh, far more of an assault of an experience for poor Jane Pooley at the time. They put her three times through a polygraph machine and she passed three times. Uh, and that was acknowledged. Ita Buttrose says no, no deceit was indicated. Uh, but after that experience, Jane was really um, deeply affected by the kind of attention that she got, which was not all friendly. No. You know, she was not applauded for going on TV and sharing that story. And it was difficult for people to do business with, including people in her family. But the long story is that now, every week, Jane Pooley hears from people who had exactly the same experience, and finally they could tell someone about it. And very often they will tell Jane these stories because in the 10, 20, 30 years since it happened, they haven't been able to tell anybody. And I have that same privilege as well. I've had numbers of people say to me, I'm telling you because I still need to process what happened. Uh, I've told my wife, I've told the person, I talked about it with the person who's with me when it happened, 
that I haven't told another living, breathing soul sometimes in the 50 years since it happened. That's the power of ridicule and the fear of ridicule over people. Mm. And I think if we can just lift that, if we'd be willing to listen to one another uh, without ridicule, without prejudice, we would discover that these stories that might sound so bizarre are far more prevalent than you could possibly imagine. I don't think there would be a friendship circle or a family circle anywhere that would not have some kind of a contact story in their midst. And some of those contact stories will be abduction stories, and some of those abduction stories will be hybridization stories. And th- that widespread, that, that's certainly, that's quite mind-blowing, isn't it, when you, when you, when you think about it in those terms? I, I have the, the same sort of response quite regularly from people who, who I interview in that, uh, people say, Look, this is the first time I've spoken to anyone about this. This is the first time I've been able to tell anyone about this. Uh, I, I haven't gone on, I haven't told that many people. I haven't told my family. I haven't even told my wife or I haven't told my husband. I haven't told my children. I've kept it inside even for 30 years, 40 years. Imagine carrying that burden around because secrets are often a burden, aren't they? Oh, they, they are. Well, if you've experienced something, that blows your whole worldview open, how do you go back to life as normal? You'll struggle to do that, and then you won't be able to explain to anyone why you're struggling to do that. Mm. So it, it is very, very painful. I had a guy contact me uh, a few months ago now who's in his 30s, and he had a close encounter when he was 15 that changed his life, but he could never talk about it. Mm. And he said finally when he was 35, he felt he had to tell his parents what had happened uh, and, and why his life had played out in the way it had. And so he told them of this harrowing close encounter, and he said his parents laughed at him. Oh. I find that is just, I just do not understand that mentality. If they could not tell their 35-year-old son was solemnly telling them something that had changed his life, if they laugh at that, I mean, that is just, for me, an extreme story of the culture of ridicule that's around us. But then at the other end of the scale, I was talking to a guy the other day, a Baptist minister, I won't mention his name, but he'd uh, been reading my book, The Scars of Eden, and he visited his dad one day, and uh, his dad knows me, and he said, oh, what's Paul up to these days? And my friend said, oh, he's actually written this really interesting book. And he he talked about The Scars of Eden, which is about paleo contact. And his dad sat and listened and then got up, went into another room, came back with a dusty old box that my friend had never seen before, opened the box. And he said, these are the drawings your grandfather made in the 1950s of UFOs that he saw. Oh, wow. And my friend had never heard that story before. So 70 years that experience had been in that family, not spoken of. And yet the opportunity comes and, all right, let's talk about this now. And my 35-year-old friend, I felt so sorry for him because I've heard from so many other 35-year-old guys in particular who have come to me with their experience of contact. And I'll say... Uh, have your parents experienced anything like this? Because very often 
contact experiences seem to play out from generation to generation in different families. And uh, he said, no, I don't think so. And then a week or so later, they'll contact me. And they said, I, 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 I asked my dad uh, and he said, all right, since you've asked, let me tell you what happened to me when I was 15. Right. And so, you know, the father has not, or the mother has not told the story because they want to protect their child. Uh, but then the child has experienced something. They've not told the parent because they want to protect themselves and their parents. But finally, when they do have a conversation, it's, oh, my goodness, we both experienced the same thing. And that's the far more common story that I'm hearing from people, which I find very reassuring. Yeah. I, and I imagine, though, if you were in that position and 35 is a child, child-bearing age or, or you're, you're in a reproduction age, if you know that your your one of your parents uh, had a similar story and you've had a similar story, I would then automatically be afraid for my child if 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 they're going. Well, to... yes, of course. If it's particularly if it's been a frightening experience. Yeah. But uh, there's an amazing movie called Witness of Another World. I don't know if you've seen it. No. Alan Stevelman is the movie maker. He's from Argentina, and he tells the story of a guy called Juan Perez who in 1978 when he was 12 years old uh, had a close encounter on his grandfather's farm. He saw a craft land and he interacted with a being and it was a pretty bizarre and disturbing experience for him. Even more disturbing was how people treated him when he shared the story afterwards and he was so traumatized by what happened next that he decided he would move further into the interior of the country and uh, just live a life as a gaucho out on his own on a remote farm. And that's how he lived his life for nearly 40 years because he had been so isolated by the experience. Alan Stiefelman met him because he saw film footage of him trying to tell his story when he was 14 and he couldn't tell it. He, he just broke down. And that was in a a group of people friendly to UFO stories. Well, my friend Alan saw that and he thought, I've got to meet that guy. Mm. That was something real. So he met him as a mature man in his uh, late 40s, still living isolated. And through the conversations he had with Juan over the next couple of years, it emerged that Juan's mother had experienced the same thing and never talked about it. So poor Juan had been so isolated and traumatized because he couldn't talk about it and his mum hadn't talked about it. And his mum hadn't talked about it because she was scared. She was scared by the experience. She was scared it would happen to her son. Then it did happen to her son. So this, this had really been a horrible grief that they both carried for a long, long time. The greatest healing came, though, not just from them sharing their stories with each other, but came when my friend Alan took Juan to visit the elders of the indigenous culture that was Juan's ancestral roots in a different country. I think it was in, in Paraguay. And he went there and he did a traditional tribal initiation. Now, if he'd been living in Paraguay as part of that indigenous tribe, he'd have had this initiation when he was 13, but he missed out he was living in Argentina. And that initiation 
shared that tribe's knowledge of our place in the cosmos and our visitors and those who engineered us and who have shaped the human experience. And for him suddenly to realize that he was part of this much bigger story, that actually all of us in this people group are familiar with these things, was the most healing thing in the world. And it's the thing I'm looking at right now as I'm working on the sequel to The Scars of Eden, looking at these stories that are carried by indigenous initiation ceremonies, indigenous cultures around the world, that if we all had this initiation when we were 13 years old, we wouldn't be traumatized and isolated by these experiences because we would have the knowledge that's been there for thousands of years about our place on the planet and we would be more ready to have the experiences and process them. Oh, how fascinating. I'm dying to read that book. You haven't finished yet, but <laughs> hurry no, up. I'm working on it right now. <laughs> would, would you like to tell the uh, Essential listeners about your book, The Scars of Eden, that's out at the moment? Sure. The Scars of Eden asked the question, has humanity confused the idea of God with memories of ET contact? And it goes into the translation of the Bible and stories from cultures all around the world that are stories of beginnings that we've often heard in a religious way. And I argue that if you use the root meanings of the words involved, you realize these are not religious stories. These are stories of our ancestors' memories of ET contact. And so the scars of Eden follows on from escaping from Eden and escaping from Eden sort of does the maths for you in plain sight. So you can see how that story is hidden in plain sight in the story of the Bible. So if if people are interested, you can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Hive, Book Depository, wherever books are sold, get hold of Escaping from Eden and The Scars of Eden. And if you want to talk to me about what you're reading there, you can contact me through the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube or the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. I'm always in the comments having conversations with people. I love hearing from people. I love sharing the journey. So many of us, as we were saying before, are on journeys of fresh learning and discovery right now. And if you want to contact me for coaching, if you have one of these experiences you need to process, you can find me at my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com. Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com. Is there anything you would like to talk about that we haven't covered yet before we wrap it up? I would just encourage anybody to do that thing of, if you can't gather a group, just ask your friends, ask your family a question like this. Have you ever experienced anything that you couldn't explain? And just see what story emerges. Because, as I say, I don't think there'd be a friendship circle or a family circle that wouldn't have an answer to that question. <laughs> and as you listen to more and more answers, I think you'll find a coherent picture will begin to form. And it's a picture that says that we are in very interesting company on planet Earth. Yes. And, and let us know what you come up with when you have asked your family members that question. Let us know. Definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. Paul, look, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honour having you on the show. I, I, I'm so excited. I could talk to you for hours, but you're probably wanting to, to go and have some lunch, I'd say. 
I, I'll do that and then I'll get back to that book. Yes, good. <laughs> Hurry up. <laughs> but thanks, thank you so much for having me on your show, Sarah. I really appreciate it. And I love the work you do. I think it, it really is the important thing. I think if we can just continue building up our storytelling and our listening to one another, I think that is an unstoppable wave of disclosure that we have going there. And I think that's the most exciting journey that we're enabling for one another. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and please come back when, when, you, when you finish that book uh, and it's ready to go. Um, I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about it. I'll do that. It'll be a pleasure. And that was Paul Wallace. Remember, if you've had an unusual experience you'd like to get off your chest and share with the Yowie Central listeners, I'm taking submissions for next year. So please get in touch with me via yowiecentral at gmail.com or via the Yowie Central Facebook group. What an incredible year it's been. Before I head off for a few weeks off, hopefully get some camping in, I'd like to thank a few awesome legends. Firstly, my gorgeous, talented, supportive and downright hilarious Australian Yowie research team, Dean, Gary and Buck, the best team of spunk rats anyone could ever be a part of. You guys rock. Every single one of the special witnesses and special guests who have very kindly come on the show this year, it is truly an honour to listen to your stories. And I feel like my brain might explode from all of the information and all of the knowledge I've gained. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you to all you gorgeous people who post interesting videos to the Yowie Central Facebook page and you send me words of encouragement. Those words mean a lot to me and I see you and I love you to bits. And special heartfelt thank you to, in no particular order, Jazz, Jessie Turner, Tony Healy, Karen Frost, Vali, Bretto, Tom and Will. You gorgeous humans, you. A big thank you to my old friend Tom Keenan, who wears his Yowie Central trucker cap with pride and seems to bump into Yowie Central listeners wherever he goes and sends me photos of the listeners he meets. Thanks, Tom, mate. It's much appreciated. Also, a huge thank you and a big Yowie hug to my friends Cade Moyer of Believe Podcast, Brent Thomas and Don Longbeard of Paranormal Portal, Shane Grove and Jason Lewis of From the Shadows podcast. I really appreciate you and your support. Thanks so much. I'd love to say a big thank you to all the legends at Main FM who cheer me on and give me so much support. Thank you so much. And last but definitely not least, my flyboy Jim, who has this amazing ability to untangle all the technical knots that I get myself into, and he never seems to get impatient with me, which is really no mean feat, trust me. Love you, Jim. Well, that's it for the show for the year, my friends. 
Yowie Central will be back next year in the first week of February. Same time, same place on 94.9 Main FM. Stay safe over the silly season, people. I'll catch you next year. Out in the cold, out in the dark, something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware, there's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl, looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal, feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch.